If you are a fan of the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast and would like to help support the show, there's a great way that you can do that and start a new fashion trend. We have a new merchandise page on the website which features t-shirts and hoodies that are available for sale on Amazon. Just click on merchandise in the top menu and all of the links will be there or go directly to divebarrockstar.com slash merchandise. Get started early on your Christmas shopping at divebarrockstar.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. Well, we seem to have survived the election thus far, and democracy was practiced once again in this uh, crazy little nation of ours. And it was another really close one, but we seem to have a winner, so that's good. Um, and I think it's a perfect week to have my guest on because he's he's not been shy on Facebook about speaking his mind. Uh, so if you follow him on Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. But we're not here to talk about politics. Uh, we're here to talk about the unbelievable career that this bass player has had. He's played on 30,000 songs on over 2,600 albums, and the number keeps growing. Um, he's one of those players that everyone has heard many times in their life, and they don't even realize it. He started his career playing with James Taylor, and he quickly became one of the most workingest bass players in Los Angeles in the 70s and then right up until now. He's recorded or performed with an unbelievable array of artists like Phil Collins, Jackson Brown, Graham Nash, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Barbara Streisand, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, George Strait, Clint Black, Chris Christopherson, Dolly Parton, Toto, Lee Rittenauer, Lisa Loeb, Leanne Rimes, Don Henley, Warren Zevon, Linda Ronstadt, Faith Hill, Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Neil Diamond, Vanessa Carlton, Billy Cobham, the list just never ends. I told you it was unbelievable. I spent most of the time just, just shaking my head in, in utter amazement, just in awe. He has a recent record out with his band, The Immediate Family, which you can find wherever you get music. He has a book coming out, which is filled with 6,000 pictures of all kinds of people flipping him off. <laughs> It's incredible. Famous people, not famous people. It's it's an unbelievable book. Uh, you're going to want to check that out. And he started a YouTube channel since the pandemic began, where every day he makes a video of himself playing bass to some albums that he's played on or like great songs that he's played on and, and tells stories from his incredible journey as a bass player. When I first put together this podcast, I made a list of dream guests, and he was right at the very top. So it's a, it's a complete honor to have him on the show. So please enjoy my conversation with Leland Sklar. I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing it. We've, we've actually we've met one time before. 
I was hanging out with Jeff Allen Ross at uh, Judith Owen's Christmas show, yeah. but it was a really brief meeting. So we don't really know each other. I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And, and in spite of both of us knowing Jeff, we'll have a good time. <laughs> uh, yes, he's a character. But man, what a talent. Unbelievable. Uh, the, the ultimate utility guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, singing, playing guitar, playing keyboards, everything he does. So you've had an incredible career as a studio musician and as a touring player. And I was wondering, do you prefer one or the other? Touring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel fortunate that, that I've never had to really make the decision of one or the other, um, right. that, that it's always been there. But I, I think if somebody put a gun to my head and said, you got to make a choice, I would, I would take touring. Um, there's that, that thing that happens when you walk out on stage. And, and to me, it doesn't matter if I'm in a little club with 20 people in it, or if I'm you know playing a stadium with a hundred thousand people in it. Yeah. My, my, the way I approach it is exactly the same. And I, I love it. I kind of love the fact that when you're playing live, you play a note and it's done. You yeah. do it in the studio and it can be scrutinized for a week. Right. Let's move. Oh, no, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> right. So, yeah. No, I loved, I loved, I love them both, but I, I would take touring. Yeah. And do you still love the travel and hotels and all that stuff? No, I mean, it, Sometimes, you know, it, it, it comes with the territory, like on, on Phil Collins tour. I mean, it's like that's the, you know, that's the ultimate touring where you got your private plane and you're staying in all these great places. But mm-hmm. most of the stuff I do, I mean, we're still busing, you know, when I'd be out with Lyle Lovett or with Judith Owen or uh, any of these people or even Toto, we'd be, you know, we'd be busing everywhere. Right. Uh, and and air, air travel has become like with your gear and, and all that, it's a little, it gets a little exasperating at times. Yeah. The right. kind of rigmarole you get put through. Um, but I always look at it as the minute I step off of that, I'm in, I'm in my zone. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing to put up with, with that stuff to get to the other thing. That, that, that's the real frosting on the cake is, is the gigs and sound check and, and all that stuff. You know, the yeah. minute I walk into a venue. I'm a happy camper. So you 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 enjoy the sound check as well? Oh, sometimes the sound check's better than the show. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it really is. You know, there, there's times where we've done sound checks and we just go, "Oh man, this this sucks now." You know, because we are wad at the right. the sound check. Um, and and sometimes too, a venue sounds better before the audience is in it. It's got a little, more, a little more lively, and a little. And as soon as the place is full of people, suddenly the sound isn't quite as as crisp and stuff. It's dried up a bit with an audience, but you yeah. know, you still do your show. But yeah, I, I love sound checks, and that's where you really can be loose. Yeah, it's especially the low end gets all sucked up by the people too. So yeah, the bass tone changes considerably. Yeah, it can be pretty dramatic sometimes. Where I'm so pumped after sound check, going, "Oh man, this is gonna be," on. and I walk out, man, first song of the set, I'm going, "Oh shit!" You know, <laughs> I've got to sit there and play with it now and tweak it a little bit. But right, it's not that often. I'm not, I'm certainly not complaining, man. Right. Anytime I can go anywhere and strap on a bass and, and play, uh, you know, it's good. It's a good day. Right. Yeah. And what are you looking for in a tone in your live situation when you are kind of playing with it? 
Um, well, it, it, it bass is bass is really kind of a, a funny instrument on stage because really you're looking at that long wave. Right. So you know when I'm you know with drums and guitar and all that stuff, it's real crisp up there. Bass a lot of times, uh, it's a little more elusive. Um, I, I I tend I tend to really love like, and it's a sound I've used on almost everything I've ever played on. Is I like just a nice, really fat bass with just enough top end for clarity, but mm-hmm. I don't want it to be brittle unless the song actually absolutely demands that it's got that kind of a tonality. Um, but I just like a really good fat fundamental um, mm-hmm. for things on stage. Um, I always keep my amp. I never stack amps. I like having speakers on the floor. Okay. So I really like to to have the bass down there below me, where a lot of guys really like to stack things up. Even when I had an SVTs, I would lay the the eight by tens, you know, on the side. Um, you. I just, I, I really like feeling it at, at, at my lower back rather than at, at head level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's all once again, predicated on, on the room you're in the kind of music you're, you know, you're playing or, you know, whoever you're on the road with or anything like that. But I, I try to keep a, a simple rig. Uh, even like when we were out with um, Phil Collins, um, I use a single four by 10 and a one by 12. And, oh, wow. and that's it. I mean, on stage on our, the biggest songs in the show, the biggest, most intense, loud songs, we could talk like this on stage. Wow. Cause we got a great sound system and we have a great front of house guy. So why, why not take advantage of that? So we yeah. keep on stage, we kind of play it almost like a club level. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, and it really gives the front of house guy, lots of headroom to work with and that's why people would come back after those shows and go then it sounds better than a cd out front yeah because it's yeah you know, there's so many times i see bands playing live and they're coming off the stage so loud i can walk over and look at the you know the mixing board and their faders are down i mean the guy can't even put them in the system yeah yeah then, then you're fighting some guys are in the system some aren't so you got the delays at the back of the room where things are you know yeah. But it's lessons learned over the years. Right. Are you on wedges? Or are you on in-ears? Um, everybody's in in-ears except me. Oh, okay. I'm the only guy on stage with wedges. Yeah. And man, I st- you know, I've, I've got in-ears, but I, I've never liked them. I know the technology's improved, but one of the things I always hated about them was like when you're trying to talk to somebody and they don't hear you and then they're suddenly like pulling their in-ears out going... And I'm just going, this is fuck. We're in a band. We're not in the studio. Yeah. I mean, let's have a relationship. And then like, like Daryl Sturmer, one of the other guys in the band would come over and they'd stand in my spot with me and they'd look at me and they'd go, oh man, this sounds great. And I'd go, just ask for the wedges. We're not like dancing. It's not like a parliament funkadelic show or something where we're running all over the stage and we have to have in-ears. You know, I mean, you know, it's great for the singers and stuff i I just never the only time i've ever used in ears is if i do like things like the grammys or you know any of that kind of stuff where you got to be getting cues right then you can't use wedges because you've got to have you got the md giving you all kinds of cues and stuff right then i just take like a a, like a maybe the buds that come with you know your phone (laughs) you know I'm, i'm not looking to have like high quality stuff so 
Do you guys use tracks with the Phil Collins thing? No. The only song okay. that, that has anything in it, um, it's probably Susudio. And and only thing going on there is there's there's a little there's a little percussion track, and then uh, I play the bass part sonically tonally, um, but then we also have like a because I, I a few times did it with like an envelope filter you know splitting it up but it was just easier to run this this one loop, and all it is is it's just going pow 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 pow. There's no real tonality. It's just that envelope sound. Right. And then I'm doubling the whole thing with a tonal bass part. Um, right. But other than that, even on, on in the tour books, it would, he would always insist on putting in, everything is live. <laughs> We're not, you know, there's, there's none of that uh, going on. I've been really pretty lucky that almost everybody I've toured with, like Toto and Lyle Lovett, all these different people, they're really organic shows. There's no, you know, not working to track drummers, not having to wear in ears or headphones or anything to right. clicks and, and things like that. So you grew up in, in Los Angeles, essentially. Yeah. Right? I mean, we moved here from Milwaukee when I was like four. Yeah. And so I grew up in the Valley. I grew up in Van Nuys. And at a time when music here was just, ridiculous so like who were some of the people that you would see in clubs at that time or oh man you'd see like Jimi hendrix see uh -huh. cream the who um the doors sunny and share um canned heat um sons of champlin 64 on was like it was magic in, in, in this town i mean there was music everywhere I mean, there's so many clubs and they were, you'd go see Paul Butterfield, um, Taj Mahal, wow. um, you know, Cam Captain Beefheart. Um, I mean, it was like just, I mean, I was a huge mother's freak. I'd go see the mothers all the time and zap. Yes. It was amazing. It was, a, it was really amazing. It was a remarkable time. And I was in a band in the late sixties and like the first gig we ever played I mean, we had never been on stage together. We'd only rehearsed. We, and the first time we ever walked out on stage was at Winterland in San Francisco opening for Zeppelin. Oh, man. You know? I wow. Mean, it, was great. it was crazy times, but yeah. it, it, it was magic. It was just unbelievable. I did the whole Chitlin circuit. I worked with Jimmy Reed and Lightning Hopkins and oh, Matt wow. Sam and Albert Collins. And, and man, it was... Big Mama Thornton, um, Pee Wee Creighton. Um, Jeez. You know, it was, it, was, it was a remarkable time. You never thought you were going to have a career. Uh, yeah, that seemed kind of like this nebulous thing. I, you know, I was in college studying totally other things. And then and just in one, I, one day, my entire life changed wow. when I met James Taylor. You know, and so, boom. And you went to Cal State Northridge, right? Yeah. Which is a, a, an excellent music school. I hated it. <laughs> yeah, I hated it from the standpoint I, I realized after two years that really what they wanted you to do was become a music teacher. Uh. And I, went, I was there with Tom Scott and a whole bunch of great players. And in the orchestra, uh, there were two string bass players in the orchestra. It was me and Daryl Dragon, who was the captain oh. of Captain and Tennille. 
Oh, wow. And the thing that was weird about that is I was in a band called Little John Farm with Dennis and Doug Dragon, his two brothers. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, but we were up there playing in the orchestra. And then one day, one of Mr. Christensen's good friends came to sit in with us, and it was Ray Brown. <laughs> and, oh, and we're sitting there going, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Brown standing right next to me and how don't suck please don't suck <laughs> I, I found myself a little um disappointed in the music department that it was really the curriculum was really not gearing towards performance as much as it was towards teaching and things like that so i went up to the um administration building and took a battery of aptitude tests and my highest aptitudes were in art and science. So I just became co-majors in art and science and was gearing towards maybe becoming like a medical illustrator or a technical illustrator. Interesting. And that's what I was doing when, when I was in this band Wolfgang who opened for Zeppelin. And, uh, and it was in that band one day where uh, our drummer, Bugs Pemberton, was English and he had been in the day he was in a group called Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in England who were rivals of the Beatles at that time and he had a friend John Fishbeck who owned Crystal Recording Studio down on, on Vine Street just below Santa Monica and and John did like all the early Stevie Wonder stuff songs in the key of life and all that wow. and he would come and hang out at our rehearsals because we had a house in Sunland um, off, off Wheatland up there <laughs> and uh we rehearsed every day up there. We would hang out. And he came to a bunch of rehearsals. And one day he brought a friend of his who had just gotten back in town. And it was James Taylor. Wow. And, uh, and James got offered a gig at the Troubadour when his, when his first album, his James Taylor album came out. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they had the band set for that. Uh, it was Carol King on piano and Jeez. Russ Kunkel and Danny Korchmar. But they needed, they didn't have a bass player. And James remembered me from this rehearsal and told Peter Asher and they found, they tracked me down and I thought I was doing one show with the guy and it turned into the 50 years of my life. Jeez. So you just never know, man, you know, right. Just a door opens and you have to just say, go for it. Right. And I walked out of school. I was, I had, I had five years of college and like 250 credits, but no, no degree. Mm -hmm. And I just, and as soon as we played that gig, they, they offered a tour for like a month. And I said, absolutely. And never went back, never told anybody I was leaving or anything. <laughs> wow. Well, when it's time to go, it's time to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So he hadn't really broke yet then at no. that point, but he had the first record out. Well, he had, he had done his Apple record. Because um, he would, because Peter, I mean, it gets real involved with he and Peter Asher and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Peter yeah. was really close with with the Beatles. They were really right. close friends. And McCartney lived in his house and right. And, yeah. and, um, and so when they formed um, Apple Records, they asked him to be the first A and R guy for the label. And and the first person that he hooked up was was James Taylor through Danny Korchmar. Um, it's like, it's, it's so involved. And yeah. so they did that one and then they came back to LA and then they cut his second album, which was where fire and rain came from. And, um, I, and I met them after they had finished that album. So I didn't play on that album, but 
it was like he was the perfect guy for an entire new direction in music. And I mean, it was a new direction, but not that unusual from the standpoint, like before him, you had Dylan and Phil Oaks and, you know, right. all these, all these people that were kind of the folk artists, folk stuff, but, yeah. he was, but he brought a whole different element to it. And, uh, and I was just really lucky that, that it was the perfect storm. Like I had what he needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got the gig with him. And he was the guy that like almost immediately was on the cover of Time magazine and being, you know, touted as this whole new movement. And one of the greatest benefits that came with that whole period was the fact that Peter Asher insisted when we did, I think it was, I think it was One Man Dog was the first album that that we did. Um, He insisted that all our names appear on the back of the album. And up to that point, you know, it was the wrecking crew, those people that never got album credit. So people, you know, be listening to Sinatra and the association and the beach boys and Sergio Mendez and all that, not realizing it was the same musicians on everything. Right. So I think when Peter did that, it changed the whole trajectory of things. And so when people started coming along like the Jackson Browns and all these different artists, these singer songwriters, Mm-hmm. We kind of used James's album as a benchmark as to what they would like to aspire to. Wow. And they looked and they saw Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, Lee Sklar, and, you know, and wow. all of a sudden, overnight, I was working constantly. And I had never been really in a studio other than doing wow. um, a couple of demo sessions. And suddenly you're in there having to craft a sound, figure out DIs and you know, all this stuff, right. how it really actually worked because I, I was in a band in 67 and the wrecking crew did our album we weren't allowed wow. to play on our record i'm looking through the window at hal blaine and carol Kay and mike melvoin and all these cats and thinking oh man i could never do that watching these people work and three years later i was working with them every day wow so it's it's, 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 an, it's an interesting journey but it was it was a perfect time mm-hmm. it was like really it entered, as far as I'm concerned, it kind of entered the golden age right. of studio work. Now, we were doing three or four sessions a day, six days a week. Yeah. I mean, it was really a ferocious schedule, <laughs> but it was so, it, 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 there were so many great artists, and right. so many great songwriters, you know, doing like all the early Paul Williams and people like that. And these just these amazing writers. And yeah. It was and great. Did it feel at the time like you were in the middle of something huge, um, historic? Not historic, because that really only comes uh, in hindsight. Right. I think when you're looking back, I was just so thrilled to actually not have to have another job. Because when I was in college, I was like working at a place, help, I was an arc welder's assistant making swimming pool filters and working at a <laughs> a place printing porno magazines under the counter and getting two bucks an hour and stuff like that. And suddenly to be able to actually be making, you know, I could make rent. It was a remarkable period. It was really one of these things. It was an energy, you know, like when they show like the, the Laurel Canyon movie and none of those things even really do justice to how intense that period was. Um, yeah. And and to be in the studio with, you know, people that that you were because I've always been like an uber dorky fan. 
<laughs> so, you know, like when I'd be sitting in the studio, like with, you know, David Crosby and Graham Nash and all these different people, and I'd always kind of sit there, you know, it's like, it, it still would flip me out if I was someplace and Robert Plant would come up and go, hey, Lee, how you doing? And I go, why the fuck does Robert Plant know who I am? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to find your place in this puzzle um, because you're, you're living in, in this. You're in your own skin. So you've got your own neuroses and foibles and all the things that comes with you right. where other people see you on a whole other level. Yeah. So it's, but everybody suffers from that. I, yeah. I, I remember being at the Universal Amphitheater years ago, and I think they were doing Tommy yeah. there. And I went with Phil Collins, and we're backstage, and it was a whole bunch of like celebrities there. And Phil brings his camera with him, and he's going, God, I wonder if, they, if I could get my picture with them. And I'm looking at these people, and these people are crapping their pants, going, That's Phil Collins. You know? <laughs> <laughs> everybody's got their own perspective of, of how they fit into the food chain <laughs> right so james taylor as you're working out these parts and stuff in the yeah. studio is he is he super hands-on with that is he sort of here's my song yeah here's, here's my cool. song find a part gotcha and he was you know for for me he was really a trial by fire um because so many of the guitar players of that ilk or just kind of, you know, strumming. And his guitar technique is so comprehensive. Right. Um, he's always got a walking bass part going with his thumb. And I would sit there listening to him and I'd go, he's kind of got the bass covered. Right. So what am I going to do on this to justify my phony baloney job here? <laughs> and, uh, and so that really, that's one of the things, because I was always like a McCartney fan when I would listen to those yeah. records and you listen to these exquisite bass parts that Paul would come up with and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I would sit there and listen to James's songs and, and think this part of a song, I can be like shadowing him and aping his parts along. And other times it left me where I, I would think he's got it covered so I can kind of weave around and maybe change some of the sonics of it by, you know, different root notes and not root notes and and doing more melodic parts where I could be more counterpuntal um, mm -hmm. to him as compared to just doing like a straight up you know one four or five kind of um, parts um, and, and so that kind of directed me but it, it directed me in a in a it, it was an interesting thing to approach that way because when I started with James that was the last kind of music I had, would have ever been listening to yeah. I was completely hard rock. Uh -huh. All the bands I was in was kick-ass, loud, hard rock bands. And the kind of music I loved to listen to was all, it was either R&B or it was hard rock. And yeah. so suddenly being, you know, kind of pigeonholed into sensitivity. <laughs> but, you know, I, I learned real quick that if I really wanted to do this gig, I really had to embrace everything. If I want to be a studio musician, you have to be adept at doing country and hip hop and, and metal and everything um, right. to the best of your ability. And so I was, I became very, very open to all of it. But what I tried to do was bring what I, I, I thought would make it interesting. I remember one of the, uh, you know, going, cause I spent like 11 years in working out of Na not, not in Nashville. I would go to Nashville all the time and work, but I remember doing like George Strait's oceanfront property album. And, and we're in there and he, he finally came over and he said, 
where do you come up with those kind of parts? Because he was so used to just like just straight country. Right. On his records. And I said, well, you know, I'm, that's how I like to approach songs. And he, he was like so excited about it. And that really, you know, so many doors were open for me down there because of Jimmy Bowen. Because I did all of Jimmy Bowen's work in L.A., like Anthony Newley and, and oh, gotcha. Martin and all this stuff. And when he moved to Nashville and took over Capitol Records, he called and said, you feel like coming down here at all? And it was like early Reba and Vince Gill and Patty Loveless and Susie Boggess and Lionel Cartwright and Marty Stewart, all these artists. And so I got to go down and be like at the front of all those people's careers. And then I got ended up doing a lot of the contemporary Christian stuff like Stephen Curtis Chapman and Second Chapter of X and Twyla Paris and all these different artists. So Right. And did you have to get used to the number system down there and... I think it's genius. I, I really, it really, it makes things so easy because generally, you know, uh, you would be working on the song, but you didn't know the key. Right. You know? And then the singer would come in and when they'd pick a key, one became that key rather than sitting there and your charts written out in B flat, but you're actually going to do it now in like E. Right. You know? And you're in your head doing all this, you know, a sixth upper you know i mean it's like <laughs> just to just to make one whatever the key is to you know and, and most of the songs weren't it's not like you're looking at a number chart for the brandenburg concertos you know it's right most of the songs are pretty straight up the only thing that ever got complicated is when you do modulations and like suddenly the four becomes the one of the new key or something like that Right. Um, I thought, it, you know, the first time I saw it, I, I, I wrapped my head around it. And, I, and I, as soon as I really realized what it was, I said, man, this is, makes so much sense when you're, yeah. it, it'd be one thing if you were doing pre-production and you knew the key and you, you, you could write, you know, do the charts in, in the right key and it would be fine. But so much energy at times gets taken away from performance by just, you know, my, you know, trying to, you know, figure out in your head what, you know, what all these notes are now. Right. But getting back to James Taylor. Yeah. So then when you played live, was he really strict about the parts that were on the record or was it no. just new kind yeah, of free for all? Wow. <laughs> I mean, we, we basically, we knew what the songs were, but James would really, I mean, people that would listen to his records were blown away when they'd see him live. Because it was a whole other energy level there. I mean, it wasn't yeah. this mellow guy, especially towards the latter 70s um, when we did like the flag tour. And there's a, the video from Blossom Music Center. And man, the band is totally on fire and James is completely on fire in, in that. Um, the, the performances always went up a notch. Um, live it always was. You know, and that's the thing. Um, I mean, it's interesting how you can end up looking at these things. I was, I did a bunch of albums with Clint Black mm -hmm. and Clint, his band is great. All the guys in his band are, are great, but we were booked to do one of his albums and um, he called, it was me and John Robinson um, were like the core rhythm section for a couple of the albums. Mm -hmm. And um, he called about, you know, five days before we were supposed to hit the studio and he said, uh, the road band would really love to do this album. And, you know, I said, great. I said, they're all great players. Why not? You know, give them a shot at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up calling about three days later. And he said, are, are you still available? And wow. I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, I, this wasn't enough time to really book another project or anything like that. 
And he said, okay, well, we're down at Westlake. I think we did it down at Westlake. And um, he said, yeah, the band would like to hang out for the sessions. And I said, cool, it'd be great to see the guys. And, um, and so we got in there and everybody, you know, hugged and said, hi, it was pre COVID. So we could hug and right. <laughs> <laughs> there was an actual hang. And, uh, and then we went out and started, he pulled out the first song, he played guitar and you know, John and I both, we sketched out a couple of notes for, for the thing and we nailed it in a take. And when we went back in the studio, the guys said, how did you come up with that part? And I said, that's the difference between what we do and what you do. I said, the thing is, when we come in the studio, we've got, you know, maybe three hours and they might want to get like four songs in that period of time. And I said, when you guys go on the road, you might rehearse a couple of weeks, you know, learn the songs. Then you're out for a couple of months, maybe. Man, by the end of the tour, you're playing the shit so much better than we recorded it because it's grown, you know, in performance, in, in development. I said, so kind of by the end of the tour, you think you wrote it. <laughs> and I said, that's, this is what we do. We, we on the spot come up with parts that define the song. And then you guys refine those by being on the road with it. But it's like suddenly to be sitting with a blank canvas. Right. And kind of not knowing what color to put on it. So it was a real kind of uh, a cathartic experience for everybody like we as i've never been jaded as a player but you get in you you know what your abilities are and you get into your space mm. in that and so it's real interesting to suddenly sit back and see these guys trying to do the same thing and not understanding how you get to that point yet on the road they're killing it right so it's 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 different animals and that's where i feel really fortunate that so many times i've worked on albums then gone on the road. And it's like when I went out with Toto the first time, it was when Mike Picaro was really becoming really ill at this point. And they, they hadn't fully diagnosed him. They were still thinking could have been lupus or something, but you know, it hadn't been the um, ALS you know, designation at that point. Mm. But uh, I was working with Luke on a solo album and, uh, and he said, look at, you know, we got a ton of touring left to go and Mikey just can't do it at this point, his hands are, are just not working. Mm. And he said, can you do it? Mike asked if, you know, we could get you to do it. And I said, well, yeah. I said, when do you start? He goes, in five days, we got to be in Dubai at the Dubai Jazz Festival. Wow. And start the tour. So, you know, I just worked my ass off and learned the set, you know, and it was a hard show to learn. But the <laughs> thing was, we filmed the, um, the um, Falling In Between video um, the second week of the tour. Oh, wow. And, and I remember sitting with Simon Phillips like a month after that, and we were going, now's when they should have been filming. Right. And it just went, it just turned into another animal altogether by that point. Because I, I, when we filmed, I was still in the back of my head, still pondering the songs. Mm. By the time we got a month into it, man, I was like, I, I, I brought me to the songs and, and we hit a whole other level of it. But I mean, it still turned out great for, yeah. the, for, the, for the video. But it's, it's just interesting how things happen, you know, in different stages. And yeah. another thing was there was a Japanese group um, that were come. They had done all their production in Japan and then they were coming to L.A. Um, and 
they had a couple of some songs that they wanted to put me and Billy Payne on um, from Little Feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so again, we were at, at Westlake and we did our parts and all that. And then there was a song that they came up with that they thought, oh, we're here. Let's maybe try cutting this. And their drummer was with them. So they had uh, him play with us on this thing. And it was in three, four. And they had they had it all gritted out and everything. And it just felt like shit. And, and, and I finally said to the producer, I said, would you just one time, could we cut this without the click? Yeah. And we did it. And when we finished, it was great. It turned out great. And I looked in the drum booth and the drummer was crying. <laughs> and I went there and I said, what's, what's going on, man? He said he'd been playing his whole life. This was the first time he ever played without click. He had no idea you could actually play without a click track. And it was really, it was a deep moment. Wow. You know, I've, I've heard drummers talk about that too, how it's, they much prefer a click track. It's, everyone's so reliant on it now. Yeah. And nobody could, it's such a flipped thing because when I was growing up, it was, if the drummer could play to the click, then they got the gig. Yeah. Now it's just, it's completely flipped. Now it's, now it's the opposite, you know? Yeah. Well, well when I would work with guys like Jeff Picaro and Carlos Vega and all, all those guys, you know, and, Ra- and Conco and Mike Baird, all, I mean, there's yeah. a bunch of the guys, you know, you could have that click going, but man, they were just weaving around that click so beautifully that, you know, they, they knew they really could push and pull yeah. with click. Um, right. Where so many guys are, are so metronomic with a click that they really, you, you, you always think, man, this, and once again, everything that I relate to in music is related to the specific song you're doing at the specific moment. Mm-hmm. There are no set rules as far as I'm concerned. The rules apply to the individual song. And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's it because each one is going to have different demands on you. Right. But there's so many times when you're doing songs and you want that chorus to lift and then you want the verse to pull back on you. And mm-hmm. when you're, when you're really being, hogtied by a click on that or or you're sitting with these anal engineers and stuff that say well we'll just grid it out so that we can we'll have the click slow down for you go just shut the fucking thing off and let's play this song but it's also because there's so little confidence in getting a performance that they want to have that in there so they can cut tracks together right you know cut one of the 50 takes you took to make the one good take that was probably would have been the second take if you would have left the thing off. Right. Right. But, yeah. And, and plus you have so many the records being made in so many different places now. So it's like, if, if you don't have everything on the grid, it turns into, yeah, it turns yucky pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the past, like couple of years, I've been doing more and more band projects where there actually is, a group of players back in the room again. But for a long time, I would just get calls and go to somebody's house and they had their little Pro Tools rig and I just plug in. And, you know, I could come up with parts, but it's so unsatisfying to do that because first off, the thing that would happen in the studio is like you're sitting there and and you would realize that the song needs a better intro or it needs a better bridge. And the band would create that. Mm. on the fly i mean right. we just do it um out of just the nature of what we did we would just you know talk to the producer and the artist and say look let's try this 
but that only happens when there's a collective. Right. But when I'm sitting in somebody's house, I can put bass parts on, but I can't really affect anything other than just a bass part. And, and the arrangement is what it's going to be. A lot of times I'm in there and there is no drum part yet. I'm just playing to a click or some program drums. And they said, oh, we're going to book a studio for the drummer, you know, so we can get in and get some real drum sounds. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's just, it's a little, you know, it's frustrating because I'd love to be in the studio and guitar player or keyboard player plays a lick and you go, wait, wait, let me hear that. You know, and you jump on it and everybody's got that thing happening and that's what makes the magic in there. But when you're just sitting with one person yeah. you know, in, in, in their studio, yeah, there's, there's X amount you can, you can bring to the table. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of amazing too, to think, cause that's, you know, same, most of my experiences too. It's like you're one, one person, maybe you an engineer and a producer, you know, but to think of the, the amount of talent that was in a session in 1975, you know, yeah. is mind boggling, you yeah. know, it was so deep. Yeah. The, the, the level of players was so remarkable in this town and yeah. you'd walk in these rooms and just, it was like a, it was like a brother and sisterhood, yeah. you know, come together and, and just make remarkable music, but it's because everybody was there contributing at the same time and, yeah. and feeding off of each other. So that you became, the, the, the sum became so much greater than the, the individual parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, it's like kind of my mantra for myself always has been, you know, don't become an old fart. <laughs> yeah, you, know, right. you don't want to sit there and, and, yeah. and dwell on something that, that was because I still want to be going that way and not looking, you know, in the rear view mirror. Yeah. Uh, the, the last session I did last week, they had a live drummer, but they had him there like an hour and a half before me. And when I got there, like, oh, we're almost done with the drums, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm here. Why don't we do this together? You know, like, and we yeah. can actually like get some like rhythm section stuff happening, but they don't want to do that. But so then I give, it was a ballad and I, I get to the intro and I'm, and I, I lay in a part that's kind of cool. And, and, but what I thought was like, you know, you almost, it sort of just fell into place because I recognized what to do there because of what you've played on ballad intros over the years you know what i mean there's such a a vocabulary that is now established that it would be kind of not as cool to go in and try to reinvent stuff you know now i'm just like well do you want do you want do you want lee sklar do you want pino paladino you know like there's there's already already such a established thing to do most of the time that it's it's not as hard i mean obviously i'm not really coming up and go with a part at that point that it's all sort of derivative but uh I don't know. I, I, th- yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, certainly with with the body of work that everybody's laid down, there's there's it's like a giant Rolodex of parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, know, you, and you can you can pull them out. And, and then the thing that that really becomes nice is like you take a part that you kind of go, you know, this is there's a part I've heard that that would work good. But let me just throw my little tweak into it because each right. guy has his own signature. Right. So, so you end up taking stuff. I mean, it's like when when I would listen to somebody like Pino, or you know, or you know, there were so many um, Joe Osborne's and you know all these these different yeah. great players that you know I drew from too. You know, and I would hear hear records that I really loved, and I'd go, 
well, this feels kind of like that record was, you know, and that kind of worked good there. So I would try to make it my own, but, but, you know, coming off the back of something that was already in the, in my head. Right. Uh, and, you know, cause there, the, the musical vocabulary is just by the nature. There's not that many notes, right. There's X amount you can do. And especially if you're working with a similar chord progressions, you're working with the, the tempo, the whole, the, the, the vibe of whatever the genre is and stuff. There's X amount you can do in it. I find myself plagiarizing myself all the time <laughs> in projects where I, I just go, you know, I might change a note or something, but I, I'm, I, and I'm not even doing it consciously. I'm following, falling into things that are just so familiar to right. me that, that I kind of go, I'll bet I could find 30 albums I've worked on where that lick is throughout, you know, weaving through all those things. But somehow you make it feel unique to that song. Right. Yeah. Right. There's X amount you can do, though, you know. So, yeah, I I never worry about I would never even worry about that. I just go, man, let's just make the thing. At the end of the day, it's like we did a a thing for Berkeley a couple of weeks ago. And and it was um, bass players and drummers on it. And we were all just sitting and talking. And one of, one of the drummers was Omar Hakim. And I, lo- I love working with Omar. And one of his quotes and the thing was, he says, and somebody told him this once, he said, don't lose the dance floor. <laughs> and I thought, man, that, that's a good message right there, man. Because if you're looking out there, it doesn't matter if you've played this a million times. If that, if you got the people going, yeah. that's it. You know, you lose the dance floor, doesn't matter what you got. You've lost the gig. You know, it's over. Right. Oh, that's funny. It's great. That kind of reminds me, on a side note, I I, yeah. I I used to teach percussion when I got out of high school and stuff, marching percussion. And mm-hmm. we went to this competition, and in the middle of it was a, a clinic by Chester Thompson. And he was talking about when he first got on the Phil Collins gig, how he was just laying down this funky stuff. And Phil was like, no, 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 man. And took him out to the nightclub that night and just in, in London and was like, watch the people dance. You know what I mean? Like, this is how we dance. You know. I, yeah. And he was like, oh, that's the feel. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, was, it was weird. I remember the first time when I first worked, because Phil had called me to work with him in 81, because uh, I had met him doing a Lee Rittenauer album. Oh, wow. And, and um, so he called me to do his face value project. And I was already committed to a James Taylor tour and things at that point. So I couldn't do it. But I said, man, I'd love to work with you at some point. I'd love. So he called me in 84 to do No Jacket Required and, and went over to London. In 85, we toured it. And um, when we were doing the album, Phil was playing drums. But when we hit right. the road, it was Chester. And I remember we got out to Shepperton Studios. And I think we were rehearsing the song Inside Out. And... It just did not feel right. It was all the parts were there. And Daryl Sturmer and I finally just said to Phil, would you play it one time? And he said, uh, the drums. and we just looked at each other and said, that's it. <laughs> was playing exactly the same part, but man, where Phil laid things, just they were nuances that small that just made the thing just work perfectly. And, um, and it, it was a challenge with Chester because yeah. Chester doesn't come from that school. I'm a diaper, a star. 
So there are a lot of us out of work right now, uh, waiting to get back to playing shows and touring. And I know I've had to do whatever I can do to take my mind off the situation from time to time. And one of the ways to pass the time is to catch up on some books you've missed. But if you're like me and you don't love to read, (laughs) there's another way you can consume. Audible.com has thousands of titles to choose from, including audiobooks about music production, songwriting, the music business, music theory, instructional audiobooks, and biographies of your favorite musical heroes. But besides audiobooks, you can also listen to podcasts, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive audio originals you won't find anywhere else. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial if you visit audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar that's audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar and you can catch up on your audio reading i'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the dive bar rockstar podcast as a new podcast getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road uh or off the road as the current case may be if you would like to support the podcast all you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. A couple of years ago, we did a thing through Warwick. And uh, uh, Jonas Helberg and Steve Bailey and I formed a trio called Jostle. It was an acronym of our names. And we got Chester to play with us on it. And man, it's the most fun I ever had playing with Chester because he was suddenly in his element doing it. He wasn't being Phil, he was being Chester. Right. And it's like a whole other guy opened up to me that I never got a chance to play with before. Interesting. So, you know. Yeah, Phil Collins, obviously, such a unique feel. How do you even, those are big shoes to fill, you know? Yeah, Phil's one of the best drummers I ever played with. I mean, yeah. most people think of him, you know, as like the, the singer guy and all. But when you go back to like Brand X and all this, I mean, this guy's a badass drummer. Yeah. And it just, it was a joy to, yeah, I would always talk, talk to him. I'd go, I hate this gig. And he'd go, well, what are you talking about? And I'd say, I'm standing like two, three feet from one of the best drummers I've ever played with. And he's not playing drums. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that must be, you know, for the audience as well. It's like, ah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a sad choice. Right? Yeah. I saw Eric Clapton in like 1987 and it was Greg Fillingaines, Nathan East and Phil Collins, yeah. you know, the whole band. And it was unbelievable. When he did the music for Tarzan mm-hmm. and it came out, uh, we did a premiere in New York for the movie and w- one of the big songs in it, Tina Turner sang. So Tina flew in from Switzerland from her home to do the to do the premiere. Mm-hmm. And and when she came in, there was like I me mean, normally we would have two or four background singers with Phil, but for Tarzan, they they needed a big choir. So there was probably about 14 or 16 singers on it. Man, Tina walks in, goes, let me hear you, hear you, moved everybody, placed them on their microphones and all this. And Phil was sitting in the back, only playing drums on this thing. And I looked at him. And he was a pig in shit. He was so thrilled just to be playing drums and she was <laughs> taking care of everything down front. And because we, we would always talk about that and he would just go, 
you know, if, if you were walking down the street and met Phil, and you didn't know who he was, or any of you guys broke into a conversation and you'd said to him, so what do you do? He would say, I'm a drummer. Wow. I mean, to him, that's his thing. He's a drummer. Yeah. And, uh, and just to see him sitting back there, just laying it down <laughs> and not having any responsibility except his kit was really, really fun. It was real. One of those moments where you go, wow, this guy's really happy right now. And did you, the first time you played with him, did, did it just feel, did you hit it off as a rhythm section? It felt great. Yeah. It felt so good. Yeah. His, his feel is so good. You know, the, the first time I played with him, well, it was on the Lee Rittenauer thing. You know, and, we, and that's why we, and I knew who he was through Genesis and he knew who, my history. Um, so it was really kind of nice to meet in, in this kind of neutral ground. It wasn't a gig either of us was doing. We were just hired to work on somebody else's project. Oh, very cool. And, um, but the first time we really sat down like in townhouse studios to, to play, I just went, oh, fuck, this guy's so good. I always describe it the same with Russ Kunkel, the first time we played together. It's like digging through the closet and you find like this old funky pair of slippers and you forgot about them and you slide them on and you just go. <laughs> yeah. You know, just it's, it's good from the minute you, you slide in. Yeah. And it's important, right? Like I think it's more important as a bass player. I always feel like, I'm kind of only as good as, as the drummer that I'm with, you know what I mean? In a certain way. Well, I think it's always the case. Yeah. That's the relationship. Mm -hmm. You've worked with so many amazing drummers. Yeah. Uh, You must feel pretty pretty lucky. I I feel really fortunate. You know, when I look at that, you know, and I think of like the, the rhythm sections that like, we just did a thing for Berkeley and it was like a tribute to Rocco you know, and Garibaldi was on the thing too. And I was just, yeah. talking, and I've, I've worked with David, you know, and just thinking about those kind of rhythm sections that there's that thing. It was always funny for me because doing studio work, I'd be, you know, different, I'd be with Jim Keltner one day and John Robinson mm-hmm. another day, and then Simon Phillips or Dave Weckl or Vinnie Caluda and, you know, all these different guys. And you're having to like adjust gears every day. And, right. um, I remember doing a thing once where I was, I think I was working with, with Vinny and then I went right out and worked with Levon Helm yeah. and Levon's backbeat was so back that he was like still on the previous song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and are there things in a drummer that you prefer? Like if you could choose or you're just, you kind of, I mean, obviously you make everything work and yeah. Um, I like, I like attitude and confidence Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to be with somebody who's like, looks like a deer in the headlights. Are Am I doing okay, man? You know, my, my, no, just show, you know, whip it out. Show me what you got. <laughs> and that was what I always loved. Like when I would talk about Jeff Picaro, um, and I would always tell people, I'd say, man, Jeff was like one of the bravest musicians I ever knew because he would do things on projects that nobody else had the balls to do, um, mm-hmm. where they would like, you know, do a song where they would just lay down a groove. He would sit there and listen to the song and then maybe just pull out brushes and do some things around the overheads and hit a few. Then you go listen to the playback and you go, perfect. <laughs> exactly what the song wanted. But most guys wouldn't have the nuts to, to be that minimalist or something. But Jeff really went with his gut and his, his gut instincts were really strong. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, for me, it's been pretty, 
there, there's a few drummers in, in town that if I walked into a studio and I saw their cases, my heart might sink a little bit because <laughs> I know it's an effort to, to find a pocket with them. Right. And yet they're, they're considered world-class guys, you yeah. know, and, and I can't say it's, it's them. You know, it's just, there's times where it just doesn't come together like you would like it to. And because there's so many things beyond just your, your chops. Well, like I mentioned, I, I play with Dwight Yoakam yeah. and uh, he was really good friends with Merle Haggard. You know, yeah. we, we do a, a good portion of our show is sort of a tribute to him right. since he died. And I know that you did a couple of records with Merle. One of the best times I ever had was Larry London and I went up to Reading to his compound up there and spent a week up there with Merle, you know, and it was, uh, it was great. But um, one of the funniest experiences I had with Merle uh, was we were doing a project. Um, I think James Stroud was producing it. We did it down in Nashville, mm-hmm. but the the first day in the, in the studio, Merle just didn't sound good. It's, it just wasn't quite there. And yet he was real clean, really drinking water. He had just gotten together with a new young wife and they had a kid and all this stuff. And the second day I, I come in and I came in early to check something out. And he had already been in like an hour and replaced all his vocals from the previous day. And he sounded great. And I looked at him, I said, Merle, yesterday, like, sucked. Today, it's like, great. What the hell happened? And he looks at me, he goes, my singing teeth arrived. <laughs> and he had dentures. And he wore the wrong ones and he couldn't enunciate um, as well. So they FedExed out his teeth. <laughs> wow. But then the thing that gets great about this, this kind of a, 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 an adventure is I was doing back in the early 70s, I was doing a Paul Anka record. And there was a guitarist on the dates who had aspirations of becoming a studio player, but just didn't quite have it. He was a good player, but just didn't quite have it. And I never saw him again. Well, he had he ended up going off and going to dental school, and he has two big dental clinics up in northern Cal, in Quincy, and some other place in northern California, and he does oral reconstructive surgery. But he's always been a Martin in Dorsey, and I've done his name's Michael Herndon, and I've done a couple of albums with him. He's a good songwriter and a good singer, and uh, in his. Uh, dental building he's got a pro Tools studio in the basement where he works on his stuff and then he'll come down and myself and john gillitan and bissonette or anybody will will end up doing his albums with him well i ended up hooking him up with merle because merle lived up there too uh, and he ended up completely reconstructing merle's mouth <laughs> I mean, and teeth and and everything and the thing that was great was they could go downstairs into the Pro Tools studio and Merle could sing and make sure nothing was messing with his singing. And beyond paying him for the thing, he did a duet on the next album with Michael and stuff. I mean, it's just like funny how these things all happen. But I remember when I really got started getting tight with Merle and I just kind of sort of said, you know, it's still sort of a drag of Oki from Muskogee because for everybody of the 60s, you know, down, 
they were always thinking, you know, like this redneck asshole kind of thing. And, and he's like the farthest thing from a redneck. You know, I mean, this guy was a liberal pot smoking drinking. I mean, he was like just this goofball. Right. And uh, and I said, that's sort of sad because I missed some years because he's by far the, one of the best singers, one of the best voices. And certainly was one of the great studs. Like when you see what a matinee idol he was as a young man. Right. It, it was really weird. A, a few years ago, we did the Grammys and, mm-hmm. um, and it was Merle and Christofferson and Willie. And then they brought in Blake Shelton to kind of be like the, the highwayman since Johnny wasn't around. And Blake Shelton is total pant load fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> but, but we're up there and there's this young gu- guitar player just next to me on stage burning. And I went, man, it's so nice to meet you. And he goes, well, we actually met before. And I said, really? When did we meet? It was Merle's son. Well, I met him when he was a baby. Wow. Probably a year old. And now he was like 22 or something and and tearing it up. And it was just kind of freaked me out. You were that little kid up in Reading and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It's just funny. But yeah, I I love, I've got this book that that I just finished that's it's got 6,000 pictures in it of people flipping me off. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite pictures is I, I got Merle, Willie, and Christofferson all together when we did that show. So I got the three of them giving me the finger. Wow. So it's wow. really great. That's amazing. I love Merle, though. He was, man, a, a sweetheart of a man. And Willie, too. Man, those, those, yeah. I mean, that's what pissed me off when we did that Grammy show. And I, and I had done like all of Christofferson's records and when he was with Rita Coolidge and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And I'm thinking, Blake Shelton, you're here. You, all you've got is this stupid ass TV show you're on and you're sitting with these giants and you're acting like the prima donna. You got the, your fluffer on stage, you know, and I'm sitting there and I think Kenny Aronoff was playing drums and maybe Matt Rawlings was playing keyboards. And we had and Dean Parks probably. And we had this unbelievable band. He's like, Five feet from us, never said hi to any of the musicians or say, man, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. You know, I'm thinking, you're the luckiest asshole on this stage. Right. You might be an okay singer and all that stuff, but you are one serious fucking pant load. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the other guys, you know, and you're sitting there with Willie and, you know, Merle and Chris, and then they're all as cool as cucumbers, as, you know, as good a people as you'd ever want to be around. And I'm going, you should be watching these guys watch them close because this is how you're going to have longevity in this business because word gets around that you're a dick and it doesn't matter at a certain point you know you're old news you're not going to have that longevity let's talk about your book uh, you mentioned your book earlier <laughs> so is it is it it's just pictures is a i'll show you okay <laughs> the other day I, I actually got the first copy oh, wow. of it and um, I should be getting them in about two weeks, and I've been taking orders for them. I, I've got 10,000 books arriving. Wow. It's, this is a deep commitment and stuff. But here's, here's the book. Nice. And then when you That's turn awesome. the book over. <laughs> and it is, it's a middle finger. It's all, I mean, and it's all kinds of people. Here's like Scott Hamilton, the Olympic skater. Mm-hmm. I've taken every picture. I've got 6,000 pictures in here of, of people flipping me off. <laughs> that is so cool. There, there's, oh, there it is. That's crazy. Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, all flipping you off. Yep. That is. So this, is this is a stout. It's huge. Book. 
And how did it all start? It, 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 there's this, actually the first picture is in, in the front of the book with a story. But when we went out on the road with Phil Collins in 2004 to do the first final farewell tour, um, they hired a, a bass tech for me. And I pretty much have never had a tech. I've always done my own gear on the road. Oh, interesting. And, and I think he came into the, the thing so overqualified. I think whoever he had been out on the road with, a guy had like 10 bases and wanted new strings every day and all this crap. And when he came to me, he was like, <laughs> he was, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, oh, nothing really. I said, I guess just make sure that gear amps on stage and works. That's <laughs> about it. I like to tune myself and I like to check my batteries and do all that crap. And I said, I, and I changed strings about once a year kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, so we had kind of this running gag because he became more of a gopher on the tour. He would get lozenges for the singers and get them to the stage and all this, where he was really highly qualified tech. His name was Steve Chinner Winstead. Gotcha. And, um, and so at the end of the tour, there was, there was really talk at that point that Phil was going to call it quits. He was going to retire. Mm-hmm. And there was about a hundred of us on the road. And I thought, man, I may never see any of these people again, because so many of them were from Europe and, and, you know, all over the place. So I thought, I'm just going to take, do a little, take a picture of everybody and have a folder in my computer with everybody in it. First person I go up to is Chinner. And he's sitting at his laptop working. And I say, hey, man, give me a smile. And all he did was go. <laughs> and I looked at the picture and I went, oh, this, this is actually good. So I went and got Phil. I got his manager. I got everybody in the band, everybody in the crew, truck drivers, bus drivers, caterers. And, and I put it away. And it was about 100, probably about 140 pictures at that point. Wow. And then everybody just, you know, giving me whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I went out with Toto and I thought, oh, I'll do the same thing with them. So I got them and it got up to about 300 pictures and then it took on a life of its own. And then I just started getting people everywhere. I'd get compartments on airplanes. I'd get all the people. I'd get the pilot and the co-pilot to flip me off. But, um, <laughs> I, I got the whole Nokia theater in one shot. Um, wow. And, and I've, I've got 12,000 photographs and we honed it down to 6,000 for the book. Wow. And and I still, but I've got like, you know, Jack Nicholson and Charles Barkley and Gwyneth Paltrow. And, um, you know, I mean, all people from all kinds of things. So, you know, I've got Charlie Watts, I've got Keltner, I've got, you know, Al Schmidt, um, you know, just, you know, it's just like, it's a real cross section of humanity. So I, I cr- we've just created a website and I'm selling the advanced books through the website. Mm-hmm. And I, we were, I was going to get LelandSklar.com. Somebody owns LelandSklar.com and LeeSklar.com. Oh, I think they were expecting me to come buy those from yeah. them. So we ended up calling the website LelandSklarsBeard.com. <laughs> and that was available. So we've got that. And uh, so I, I'm getting the these books are going to be delivered in a couple of weeks. And um, then I'm going to start, I've got a, I've got a laser printer right next to me and I'm going to start printing labels and shipping books. And uh, you're going to do it yourself. Doing everything myself. Wow. Okay. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Hans Wilfer at, uh, at Warwick about maybe shipping a pallet because people in Europe, there's a lot of people that want the book, but the, the shipping's more than the book. 
Right. It's like the book is for Europe would be 60 bucks. It's I'm I'm charging 60 bucks or $80 for a personalized autographed one. Mm -hmm. And so I can't sign them for Europe because I'm not there. So that would be 60 bucks, but it would be $80 to to mail it. Mm -hmm. And that's the cheapest. So I'm thinking of just shipping him a pallet of of books and then I'll direct people to Warwick and then he can sell them and then send me, you know, we'll split it up, you know, and do something. But, um, it, but I've got all kinds of crap going on. I, we've just come up with a, a t-shirt that has my beard on the front of it. So we're going to be selling that. And, and all, I'm, I'm putting my graphic art stuff, uh, like real high quality limited edition stuff on the site. Now we're putting that up and, mm-hmm. and I've been busy with the YouTube channel every, I mean, I've put a video up every single day since the pandemic began. I've been watching. It's, 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 it's amazing, actually. It's been quite an adventure. Like tomorrow, I'm all set for tomorrow. I'm doing, there's a guy named Rick Roberts, who I did an album with back in like 72, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember on that date, you know, Henley was playing drums on it. And Henley came up to me and he said, do you think Eagles is a stupid name for a band? Because they were just forming. And I said, I, th- I said, I thought Beatles was a stupid name for a band, you know? And uh, so I'm looking at, so I'm going to, because I, I mean, I just mashed the shit out of my thumb. Uh, uh, um, uh, steel, steel pipe fell on it. And uh, I was doing some work. So for a couple like today, I put up Wilson Phillips, some stuff I did with them. And tomorrow I'm going to put up this Rick Roberts um, stuff and and there's a couple of songs because some guy on on the site has been bugging me for like months to put the rick up on there so i figure for a couple of days i'm just gonna not play and i'm just gonna do things so i'm gonna Mm -hmm. do that i'm gonna do a kenny rankin stuff the next day and then i'm gonna do some uh some lucather solo stuff you know just i try to you know just keep yeah people on their toes (laughs) you know but but, uh, on on that site on, on the YouTube thing, I, I started a clubhouse, you know, you know, instantly a year's worth of work went down the crapper Yeah, when the pandemic hit. And I just thought I could either sit here and be bummed, um, especially with the band. I mean, things were really starting moving great with the immediate family and Danny Tedesco's doing a documentary film about us and, mm. you know, and all that stuff. It's all still moving, but it just suddenly went from you know, a bullet train to, you know, a, an old steam locomotive and we're just, right. you know, plowing through, uh, through the countryside. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's like everybody else, you just kind of sit there and go, what the hell am I going to do? And, and I, I had never recorded at home ever. Um, whenever people would say, could, you know, you play on something for me, I would go like John Gilliton or somebody, I'd just call him up and go over to their house cause they had home studios. And I'd say, let's throw the space part on and I'll take you to lunch kind of thing. Right. Right. And, but you know, with the, with the way things are now, that's really not that feasible. Mm-hmm. And this guy, this friend of mine, Gussie Miller called me and they, they had a group, they were going to do a cover of uh, easy lover. Yeah. And he said, would you play on it? And I said, I'd love to, except I, I don't have any way of recording at home. I'm not set up for anything. And he had friends at SSL and like immediately they sent me an SSL two plus interface. And uh, so I plugged, pulled up GarageBand, plugged it in and called Steve Postel, who's one of the guys in our band. Right. 
And I said, walk me through it over the phone, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I did. And I just finished doing an album for a guy in Ireland. So I'm, you know, I'm looking at every option I can just to stay feeling engaged and not just, you know, falling into a, a kind of a morose, you know, it's all over kind yeah, of. Right. But it's a bizarre time. You know, we are in, in a really unprecedented, bizarre experience here as a, as a species. So, yeah. I'm, you know, like you, I'm, we're just waiting it out and, um, you know, just trying yeah. to stay afloat during a difficult time. So yeah. it's great that you're doing your thing here, having, you know, doing your podcasts and stuff. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just trying to stay sane and trying to stay in touch too, you know, like just talk to people at least, you know, and just uh, remember that I had this whole life that was <laughs> that was pretty cool at one point. And now I'm like, well, I'm in my garage again, you know, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I feel kind of like when you hear like a plane's having trouble and they're circling the airport, dumping fuel before they come down. I feel like <laughs> we're circling something, dumping fuel and, <laughs> you know, but I, I like, I've told the people on, on, on the, especially on, on the YouTube stuff. Cause a lot of people, I mean, it's really weird. I've got these people that are sending me pictures of like their families eating dinner, watching the videos on TV. And they wow. said, you're, you're like our voice of, calm and reason yeah you know, and i'm sitting here thinking fuck i'm turning into mr rogers or something <laughs> um but i have told them i said you know when when the doors finally open and we can go back and do all this stuff i said i'm not going to stop doing this i said i'm yeah. loving doing this so i said the only thing that'll happen is i can enhance this or i could actually like take them backstage i could take them to sound checks and gigs and set a camera up and you know, and, and interact and, and interview people. One of the things I'm going to do with the book, and we're, we're praying, we're checking now to make sure the shipments are going to be in. Have you ever been over to LA Vintage Gear? I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't uh, been there. Yeah, it's great. It's right near Costco um, in Burbank. We're going to do a book signing, an uber careful book signing there. And uh, that's great. You know, do it out on the, on the sidewalk in front and Everybody has to be masked and take temperature. We're going to get a thermometer and mm-hmm. check yeah. people. You know, we're looking at, you know, all kinds of things that, that are potential, you know, things. So, but everything's got to be done safely at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So that's December 7th, you said? Yeah, December 7th at, at LA Vintage Gear. Well, man, I cannot thank you enough for talking to me and uh, taking oh. the time. And, and uh, it's been a total honor and you've inspired me you know, I mean, if I could have a career anywhere near yours, which I don't know, it's probably too late, you know, for, for, for music to have it'll, a career never, like yours. It'll never be the same. It'll never be that same career. It's like when I would, you know, like I'd go do a master class at Berkeley or something like that. And I get all these young, hungry musicians going, man, I want to do what you did. I yeah. just want And I look at them and I go, it's so easy, man. So <laughs> look, look at you. Go out to the garage, get your dad's tools, and you build a time machine, and you set it for forty years. And go, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you're you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> but there are things going on that aren't what I did, but there is valid. You know, so you, that's that's the thing is you know you have you have to hunt, dig deeper because everything was kind of right there right when, when we started doing it. And now it's, you know, there aren't really the labels anymore. There's, you know, a few labels, but they're not signing tons of artists or anything. They're catering to their few successful artists, but there's no artist development and all that going on. 
right for the most part um so you know the, the machine that was there when we started with radio and all that i mean mm-hmm. you always knew you were going to get ripped off right that was a given um but you could get your music heard mm-hmm. and, and now you know it's like work on so many projects where you know after we finish the project my they start calling going any any idea who we could call any ideas you know and so you've got this really great product sitting there and what do you do with it yeah you know the talents there it's the business that's right really yeah. hurting so i think you know when as people kind of find their way through this these parameters of of the new world order and that's not just covid it's just the way really the way things got after things turned digital where like yeah. when i was a kid you know, when you heard Sergeant Pepper, you went out and bought Sergeant Pepper. Right. You, you didn't burn a copy or, or, or get to the point where you just download it for nothing. Right. Um, it was actually a viable business that, you know, you could make a living at. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's exactly. a different thing. And I, I, I would hate to be starting. Right. At this point, I'm, I'm grateful to be in, in my twilight years. <laughs> of career. You know, I have no yeah. intention of, of stopping and, the only thing that would ever stop me is, is if like suddenly I was arthritic or something and couldn't play. Right. Then right. I'm, then I might look for some other options to stay in music, but thus far, I mean, I still got my chops. Yeah. You know, and so. it seems like you still enjoy what you're doing. I love it. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I'm as, I'm as enthusiastic right now about playing as I was when I did the very first album I, I actually recorded professionally was a Brian Highland who did Itsy Bitsy Teensy Weensy Yellow <laughs> and, and Del Shannon produced him. Wow. And, and I think they came and saw our show at the Troubadour with James and hired me. And so I actually recorded with him before I recorded with James. Wow. And, and I got to Japan and somebody came up with that album and had me sign it. Um, <laughs> but, but I look back at that and that was like probably early 1970 or so when, when, when I did that and man, I'm, I'm enjoying it as much, you know, low these many years later, um, as I did then. Uh, in fact, I, there's an element I might enjoy more because, because I understand what I'm doing a little bit better <laughs> as compared to being a complete neophyte at that point and really wondering what the hell was going on. Right. So, yeah, but but this is this is great, man. And you know, I'm happy to come back anytime and just shoot the shit, even if you don't end up using it. If you just want to, <laughs> if, you, if you just want to archive or something, great. Well, I I will probably take you up on that because yeah. uh, this has just been amazing, and I love that you're willing to talk and tell all your stories. And and uh, you know, it's just like I said, it's a, it's really important to to what you know the history of what we do and. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. It's not, you know, like yeah. you said, it's not, definitely not over, you know, and you're playing. Oh, man. No, it's not over. Yeah, it's not over at all. And um, I, I think really the most important thing at this point is just for everybody to stay safe so that when this does end, we're still here. Yeah. To enjoy it. Right. Uh, and it was weird with the YouTube thing. It was an accident, complete accident to me. Um, I had no intention. I had no idea. And, and like three videos into it, people started writing, going, man, we love your YouTube channel. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> said, oh, man, no, we're, we're, we're all watching it. I'm going, what? You know, because I just put a couple of things up to, to, because of some, some questions I was sent off of Phil's tour. Mm-hmm. 
next thing I know, you know, it's like there's 140,000 people on the channel. And, yeah, you know, I mean, it's become this, this community that I've never dreamed of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it gives inspiration to us, you know, sidemen. We're just sidemen. You know, our job is to support. And yet yeah. you've become a celebrity of sorts. It's weird. It's, it's <laughs> like, at the end of the day, I always tell people, I, I, yeah, I'm a bass player. <laughs> you know, I mean, just I'm, I'm a hired gun. You know, you call me. There's there's times where I've like done interviews and I've, I'll, I'll say, you know, there's a part of me that that can be you know, certainly jealous of somebody like Flea. <laughs> you you kind of go, all he's ever had to know is chili peppers. I mean, he can do whatever he wants and he does other things. But basically, chili peppers made him a, a shitload of money. And mm-hmm. and all he's ever had to learn is like a set. <laughs> and, and like when I go to work, I have to join a new band every day when I go to work. I have to learn all these new songs, come up with parts. But I wouldn't give that up to be the other side. But there's times where you kind of go, people don't understand the stress level of yeah. what studio work is really all about. because. Right. You know, when you go in that studio, at the end of the day, you have to, you had a blank canvas and there has to be a masterpiece. Right. Uh, you can't just sit there and go, I don't feel it today. Let's just go see a movie. We'll come back tomorrow. Because generally you don't have tomorrow. You've only got today. Mm-hmm. And so you're, the, the level of stress that that, that that can create is pretty right. intense. But at the end of the day, you're making music and people only hear that. So they figure the job is a joyous experience. Right. And there's no pressure. You just go in and you play music. I mean, what's the big deal? Man. It's kind of going, well, you have no clue. Right. This is really all about. I mean, I, I, I love it madly and dearly. Yeah. Uh, but there are times where I thought, God, it would have been fun to be in a band. And just, you know, when I look at guys like Dave Grohl and stuff and you just kind of go, man, what a what a fun time you you've got <laughs> financially totally covered you can take on all kinds of projects like the Sound City documentary and right. all kind of stuff and you know but that's not the world that I've ever lived in you know I'm I'm, I'm a I'm the plumber I'm the yeah. gardener right so. yeah especially in this town with so many talented people and it's interesting hearing that coming from you because you know I feel the pressure all the time but I'm I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not you, you know what I mean? But, but it never goes away that the, 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 the things that we all feel, uh, it's a squirrely business, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like you're, 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 you're only employed as of your last gig. Right. And then every time the gig ends, you're unemployed until the next gig comes along. There's none of that security. I've never been credited on a lot of the things where I was involved with as, as writer. So I don't have like big mailbox money or anything. So for me, it's like, I've got to work to earn money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like right. going through a period like this is really weird, even though at, at this point I'm on social security and pension and all that stuff. So, I mean, I can survive right. all of this stuff um, and not have a massive lifestyle change, mm-hmm. but, but you know, it, it's not like the guys that I've known, like like people like Paul Williams or Carol King, where you go, God calls them for a loan. You know, <laughs> think of it, you know all the work I did with Mike Post over the years, and I just think every time Law and Order starts, oh man, man, it's it plays a thousand times a day all around the world. You know, and for like twenty seven years now, that just that <laughs> that little theme is like, yeah, everyone man, knows it. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, 
You know, the other thing, we didn't really have time to talk about it, but uh, I subbed with, uh, well, you know, Bill Sinkay. Yeah. Um, he was on another episode as well, but I subbed for him on the Peter Asher gig. Oh, and, yeah. And I did it one time at this Beatles festival. And, uh, but it just was funny because I, I went to Jeff Fallon Ross's house to rehearse. And he's like, yeah, we called Leland Sklar and he couldn't do it. And I was like, I'm on a list with Leland Sklar. Like, <laughs> if nothing else, a, I've accomplished that. <laughs> isn't that a fun show? Peter. Oh, my God. His history on, on that, man. Every, every time I've done that, because he's, he's got, you know, he had Bill doing it and he had Jennifer Condos, I think, has done it. And yeah. Stuff. And uh, uh, the few times I've done it, man, I just sit there and I go, I've known this guy since you know, like 1970. And I'm learning new things every time with yeah, him. Yeah, right. Depth of where he's been in this business and what he's been around and seen. And, I think he's like the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. You yeah. Know? He's just, somewhere between Forrest Gump and Zelig. Zelig, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, he must be a great producer to work with because he's, he's just produced so many great records. Yeah. It's like, he's got the Midas touch in a way, you know? Well, he's really great because he really, he's instinctive and he's not one of those guys who imposes himself on the session. He just, he sits there and he just listens. And if he has a thought, he, he expresses it, but he really likes to surround himself with the best people he can and let them do what they do. He hired them for that reason. You know, I always hate that when somebody hires you, you go, man, we couldn't do this project without you. And the minute you pick up your instrument, they start telling you what to play. Right. You're going, yeah. get anybody, <laughs> just get anybody, go down, man, go down to Lama and just go into the bass room and, find somebody who knows how to play their instrument and bring them down here, give them a gig because <laughs> right. this is just bullshit. Yeah. But, right. But it's, it's a little of everything, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, you take good care, stay safe. Best to you, 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 you guys and good luck. Thanks again, uh, man. It's, it's a pleasure. Great. And we'll, we'll see you again. All right. Sounds good. Man, what a great guy. It was so nice of him to be on the podcast and uh, it made me think a lot about why I moved here in the first place, because I really, I, I seriously moved here to get my ass kicked by guys like that. And, and I, I wanted to live in a place where any night of the week I could go out and see great musicians that just made me work harder, you know, and I wanted to, to, to have guys like him as my standard. And I thought if I could make a living amongst the best players and I would really know that I accomplished something, you know, as a player. And, and it's a humbling experience talking to a guy like that. And, um, and I just try to stay in that humble place. So LA has turned out to be everything that I wanted in a town when it came to those things. I liked when he talked about embrace everything as far as styles and music where he, he was a hard rocker and had his biggest career break with James Taylor. <laughs> and uh, he was pigeonholed into sensitivity. And it just, I think it's hard when you're younger to keep an open mind to all genres. It was really hard for me, but I think it's vital to do if you want to make a living, you know, especially now because there's just less and less gigs. So it's important to appreciate all kinds of music and, and to learn about all kinds of music and to be as diverse of a player as you possibly can, you know, and he's, he's just one of the best. 
I also hope that I love music as much as he still does when I get to be his age. And, and you know, I hope I, te- I feel like I'm getting less and less jaded as I move through life, which is kind of weird. Um, I don't know if that has to do with just sort of being a little more successful as I've gone. And, you know, once you start rolling a little bit, then, then you get a little less angry at the business. I don't know. But, um, I, I hope that I, I have as much joy left uh, in what I'm doing as he does. It's really inspiring. So the Wrecking Crew was a group of musicians that, that used to be like the L.A. Session house band. They made hundreds of hit songs, backing up artists and in, in even being bands for their recordings, like the Monkees was the Wrecking Crew. So there's a great documentary about them so uh, that you can check out. Jennifer Jo Oberly also does the Peter Asher gig, and uh, she's been a guest on the podcast, so check out her episode. And wedges are the old-school monitors that sort of, it's a speaker that faces up at you when you're singing. They're wedge-shaped speaker cabinets, and they've been replaced now a lot of times by in-ears, which are molded to your ear plastic and they have speakers in them and they're really they're kind of frustrating because you can't talk to people because they're sealed tight to your ear so nothing gets in and out except for what the sound is some of them have what they call ports and air does get in between you know it can go in and out and you can't hear but it depends on the type of monitor that you have but for those of you that don't know those terms that's what we're talking about And the Nashville number system is the way that they notate music in Nashville. And they literally use the number one for the one chord, the number four for the four chord, number five for the five chord. And it's not too complicated a system to learn, but it's definitely something you should have in your arsenal if you're going to be a modern day musician. And of course, when he's talking about Toto, he mentioned Luke, and that he's referring to Steve Lukather. And whenever you're talking about drummers and someone says Vinny, it always refers to Vinny Caliuta. He's one of the best drummers alive. <laughs> and he also talked about Llama, which is the Los Angeles Music Academy. And a good friend of mine, Kevin Lehman, used to attend that and then taught there for a while. He's back in Denver now, but shout out to Kevin Lehman. The school is actually now called the Los Angeles College of Music. And Phil Collins, his health is not so good, and that's why he's not playing drums at the current moment. So that's what I was talking about when, it, when, it's, when I said it was a sad situation. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm a star. Wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. <laughs>